Parenting. I cannot say this enough between services after the first service. A grandmother uh, thanked me for what I'm about to say next, and it's important that you hear it. Not because I'm saying it, but because it's true. When we come to the sacred task of parenting, please always remember, just like everything the Bible tells you to do, you are responsible only for your own obedience to God. Parents, please hear this. You are not responsible for outcomes. You're responsible to understand what God tells you about parenting, to understand that as the psalmist says, children are a heritage from the Lord. In other words, they're a gift from Him. They're part of His stewardship entrusted to you. You have them only for a brief time. In that time, you are to love them and bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You are to teach them where they came from, how much God loves them. You're to tell them the gospel story, that God loved them so much He sent His Son to live in their place and die in their place. You are to teach them and train them. As I'm going to tell you today at length, you are responsible for correcting them. You're even responsible for allowing consequences to reach their lives so that they will learn the valuable lessons that pain and consequences alone can teach. But... You're not responsible for outcomes. As you hear this teaching, this week and next, please take yourself off the hook for the outcomes of your children's lives so long as you parent them faithfully. Let me make that very plain. At my age and for many years now, if I do something foolish, wicked, stupid, sinful, if I end up in the paper and embarrass you, that's on me. That was not my mom and dad. They taught me and loved me well. Like myself, like you, they weren't perfect parents, but they were faithful parents. They loved and parented me with integrity. I'm now responsible for outcomes. Do not waste a moment with guilt and shame over the past. Engage the season of parenting or grandparenting or guardianship or wherever God has you that has given you influence and opportunity in the life of a younger person who looks to you in some role as a parent. Steward that well, but take yourself off the hook of being responsible for outcomes. I was practically born in the church. They carried me into the church as soon as I was able to leave the hospital. So I've been, as a third-generation minister, I've been around solid Christian families in ministry my entire life, and it is a well-known phenomenon in ministry. Pastor Jones and his godly sweet wife have four kids. Three of them are amazing. The fourth is a complete knucklehead. They love them alike, they train them alike, they gave them the same education and the same opportunities. Three are spectacular citizens, love God, love people, serve God, serve people, making a positive contribution on earth that will someday resonate in heaven, but their kid brother is a complete ignoramus. And it appears to have been raised by wolverines, not by Christian parents. And my point in telling you that is, that was his choice. Your adult children will someday answer to God for themselves. Take yourself off the hook. Listen to what the Bible has to say about parenting and embrace it. Where you have made mistakes, own it. Don't excuse it. You may do well to go back to them and apologize to them for what you now realize God is teaching you. You have done wrong. Where you have come up short, as I'm about to read you, the psalmist did, reflecting on the life of his nation, Israel, 
You own your own mistakes, but embrace the privilege, the joy, the potential of raising your kids to love the God who made them. So, last week, I told you that it had occurred to me that faith, hope, and love, the Bible says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, that I thought faith, hope, and love is a simple way to remind ourselves of what we are to do as parents. We have to live the faith and we have to transmit the faith of Jesus to our children. Our children need to hear the gospel. That was last week. This week, let me talk to you about hope. And if you have your bulletin with you or you're following along in the notes and the app, look with me please in Psalm 78 and let me explain to you where we are. Psalm 78 is a long psalm. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and the reason for that is the psalmist is recounting the history of Israel. He is beginning with the beginnings of the nation and chronicling how God was faithful to them and brought them along for centuries and generations. It ends, Psalm Psalm 78 ends after this long recounting with the life of David because it actually comes up to the present day. Psalm 78 was written about a thousand years before Christ. It ends with the life of David at the time. And in Psalm 78 verse 5, there's some interesting wisdom for parents. Psalm 78, verse 5, read along with me, and I'm going to ask you to read with me at a certain point. Speaking of God, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob. And Jacob is just another synonym for the nation of Israel. This is poetry, and poetry doesn't work if you keep saying the word, same word over and over again. Jacob, in this case, is not an individual. It's a word that stands in for the whole country. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Here's our task. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set, what's it say? Their hope in God. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Here's the confession. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Psalm 78 verses 5 through 8 are massively important. We can draw the principle from the experience of Israel to say that the reason that God has revealed Himself to people in the past is that those who have the privilege of knowing Him would teach those who were coming up behind them. They would avoid our mistakes, they would avoid our foolishness, they would avoid our sins, and they would be faithful to God as perhaps we chose not to be until God intervened and saved us. And in a rapidly changing culture, you must teach your children to endure adversity by placing their hope in God rather than in popularity, success, or as I'm going to explain to you, even safety. The culture is changing around us and most of those changes, morally and spiritually speaking, are negative. Spirituality 
people's growth and faith and love in God has not kept pace with technology. And the culture is changing at an alarming rate. And in this season that we're in, as it was true of Israel 3,000 years ago, the responsibility of parents is to teach their children to endure adversity. And they are going to endure adversity by placing their hope in the God who loves them. Not, as they are being taught to do by the culture, particularly mediated through technology, to trust in popularity, to trust in success, or to trust in safety. Life is filled with adversity, agreed? I won't have time to trace it all through. I'm not an expert, though I've done a great deal of reading in this area for other reasons in the last several years. But roughly with the same advent of the cell phone and in large part because of the advent of the smartphone rather, there was a change in our culture that said that if anyone is facing adversity, feeling pressure that was negative and harmful to them and that such challenges were best removed from their lives. We're parenting an entire generation that way and it is disastrous to them. A misunderstanding of what genuine safety and compared to the normal adult pressure of life, misunderstanding those two things betrays an entire generation. And if you know God, if you know that God loves you and made you in His image, that you live in the world that God made, and that you have life because God is life and gives life, and that's why you're alive and you depend upon Him, and that God, seeing you lost in sin, sent His Son after you to live in your place, and through trusting Jesus who died for sin, you turning away from your sin and trusting Jesus instead, you now enjoy eternal life, that gospel message needs to radiate from the center of your parenting and teach your children to endure adversity, placing their hope in Him, in God, rather than in these pale substitutes that are being upped up in God's place. To be popular, to be successful, or perhaps at the same time, and the usage of some, to be, and we'll talk about this, to be safe. Some of this is going to be countercultural, but I'm going to show you a verse in Galatians and, a, and several Proverbs to help you understand this central truth. Here it is. When you're raising your kids, raising them rarely means rescuing them. Raising kids rarely means rescuing them. You may have to rescue them sometimes, but hopefully not and probably not, and you will need to, quote, rescue them far often than they tell you they need rescuing. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. I want to show you a timeless truth in the middle of Galatians. Chapter 6. I'm lifting this single verse out of context. It's in, it's in one of Paul's letters written to a group of churches who were believing in the Jewish law and their careful observance of it to save them rather than Jesus. That's the point of the letter. Paul corrects all of that at the end of the letter as he always does. He gets practically, gives them practical living advice. 
He teaches them how to benefit from the teaching of their spiritual leaders. He tells them and pleads with them to invest in the spiritual rather than the material. And in Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 7, he gives this timeless principle. It's not his point here, but it's true. It stands alone as a principle flowing directly out of God's character. Here it is, Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also, what's it say? Reap. Now, we're in the 21st century in coastal Orange County. Does everybody understand what those words mean? This is a big eternal truth. Do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. Don't fool yourself. God will not be mocked. God will not be cheated and made fun of. He has put a, a rule to work in the world that He made. And that rule is this. Whatever you plant, you also harvest. Very simple idea that everybody understands except when it comes to their precious children. And remember, I'm your fellow struggler. I have children and I happen to think, big as they are, grown as they are, I happen to think they're precious. Okay? They would cringe to hear that, but I think my kids are precious. Here's how this works. It's actually really simple. If you plant apple trees in your backyard, what would you expect? What kind of fruit would you expect to have in a few years? Would you be indignant if no bananas were produced? Would you feel cheated? No. In the real world, whatever people put in the ground, whatever seeds they plant, they expect that seed to come up after its own kind. If they plant apples, they expect apples. Only in parenting, because of the terrible temptation to rescue our children rather than raise them and train them, do we think that we can invest one thing and fix it all in the end by rescuing them? Here's specifically what I mean. Protect your children from harm, but never from struggle and failure. Look with me, please, in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to read three consecutive Proverbs, all talking about the same things. And then, as Proverbs invites us to do, I'm going to make some very specific, right here, right now, applications of what these ancient Proverbs invite us to think about and put into practice. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Here, for the first time in these brief reading that we're going to do, the book of Proverbs is going to use the word rod and later rod of discipline. Sometimes it's a physical object. More generally, it is consequences that are purposely directed into the life of a child so that they will learn, so that they will learn from painful experiences as well as blessings. Proverbs 13, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to, what's it say? Discipline him. If you do not correct your children, Proverbs says, you're acting as if you hate them. If you love your child, you will be diligent, you will be consistent, you will be eager, you will be faithful, you will be tireless in disciplining them. 
In other words, of setting up boundaries, of establishing both blessings and benefits and consequences that will come into their lives in response to the way they choose to live. Look further, Proverbs 22, verse 15, same idea, different proverb. Oh, how my mother loved this verse. She may listen to this later and laugh. Hi, Mom. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up. Can you hear me? Hello, hello? All right. We'll just switch to the mic. Can you hear me now? Excellent. You didn't hear me. Hi, Mom. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs are short, pithy, catchy little sayings that invite you to ponder what do they mean and how do I put it into practice. Foolishness is bound up in the hearts of children. Anybody who's ever been around children knows that that's true. If you don't believe that's true, just ask to observe a preschool playground sometime. It's chaos. It's bedlam. All of the worst traits of humanity are all on display in the playground. That's how human nature works. Because of the effect of sin, foolishness is all wrapped up in our heart, the only thing that will teach us about it is consistent discipline, Proverbs says, will drive foolishness far from that child's heart. I'm reminded one of my sons, I have two very active sons, still do, just grown. One of their, one of their friends in grade school had a t-shirt that he often wore around our house when he came over to visit, which said simply, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I thought, what a perfect t-shirt for eight, nine-year-old boys. No foresight, no awareness of consequences. They're not thinking about how it might end up, and I might be in traction if this stunt doesn't work. We're just going to do it. Only discipline, only training helps a child correct his view. Look at a final proverb with me, Proverbs 29, verse 17. And here's the, here's the sights you want to set for yourself. Here's the goal of parenting. Here's the season by God's grace and their mother's diligence that my wife and I find ourselves in right now. We don't take it for granted. We continue to pray and work toward it. But this is the goal and the long-term outcome of parenting that is well-received. Proverbs 29, verse 17. Discipline your son and he will give you, what's it say? Rest. He will give delight to your heart. So really, parents, you just have to choose when you want to have the struggle of parenting. If you continually step in and rescue them from their consequences and avoid the momentary pain of training them along the way, the Bible would warn you and personal experience for generations would tell you that every, all the unpleasantness you avoid in day-by-day day faithfulness and discipline and training will all come due years down the road when it is perhaps more than you actually want to pay. Number two, please teach them that pressure and consequences alone are not harmful. 
Listen in love, but do not let your child alone decide what is harmful. At the very end of this sermon, I'm going to reference a secular book. It's not a biblical book, but it is filled with true wisdom. The researchers, who as far as I can tell, have no personal faith in God, have discovered things that God has always known to be true. And what they chronicle is people who are professional researchers, one of them a PhD in an elite university, they noticed, as I have, who occasionally teaches at the, teach at the undergrad level, they noticed a remarkable change in their students where their students were continually saying things like, I don't feel safe. And nothing in the physical world had changed. My own personal most dramatic experience with this, years ago I was giving a simple, positive, cheerful, happy little one-hour talk at a local Christian university, and the professor who invited me warned me on the front side to not be alarmed fully, I believe she said, one-third of our, or the students might, as many as one-third of these people are so on edge that they might burst into tears and walk out on you in the middle of your lecture, and it won't have anything to do with you or anything you're teaching, so don't, don't be alarmed. And I asked if something terrible had happened on campus, and no, as it turns out, they were very upset about things in the national news some 1,200 miles away. And it was sad events, but it had no direct impact on their lives. They didn't know anyone involved. It changed nothing about their middle-class suburban Christian education. They had so internalized that fear, none of them did, but she warned me any number of people might suddenly burst into tears and to leave because they are feeling such pressure from the wider society. And what has happened there, and I'll reference these researchers at the end, people have internalized the idea that anything that brings pressure, anything that produces discomfort, Anything that is adversity is immediately harmful to me. So it must be stopped. I must separate myself from this source of pressure. I must separate myself from the adversity. None of that is true. Do not let your child alone make the call on what is harmful. Because there is no growth without effort and failure. When the Bible uses the words discipline and training and correction and this phrase, the rod of discipline, none of that is pleasant. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that no discipline at the moment seems pleasant, but later it gives a harvest of peace. You get to enjoy the benefits later, but if you continually withdraw from the process, you learn nothing. You only increase your own fragility. You only make yourself more fearful. You don't develop into the person that God gave you the capacity in Christ to become. This is all very conceptual. Let me give you three specifics. Pastor Jim taught me this, and I applied it in the lives of my boys. It wasn't always popular, but it turned out. Here's an example from sports. You can retire, but you can't quit. What does that look like? Well, your son, like all sons, or your daughter, like all young children, grows up wanting to play a sport, believing that, of course, she will be very, very good at it. Okay? Probably play for the pros. I remember one of my sons talking with one of his uh, classmates when they were probably seven or eight years old. The question at the time was, 
Once we become football players, do we go to USC and give them a year, or do we go straight to the NFL? <laughs> that, was, that was literally the heartfelt conversation. I, I sat in the back of the room and just smiled that the real decision is not whether we're going to play football at a high level, but whether we bother playing at a big D1 program or go straight to the pros. That kind of overconfidence is common for children. And then your little darling goes out for the AYSO team, and he's not that good. And the coach recognizes it, and doesn't play him, and he doesn't star it, and he doesn't tell him, as you might have, that everything he does is awesome. So he says, I'm being bullied, I'm being abused, I'm being mistreated, I want to quit. Here's the rule you can retire, but you can't quit. You're on a team. You made a commitment to a coach, you made a commitment to your teammates, you can retire at the end of this season. If this is not the team, this is not the sport for you, you can retire. You can't quit. That simple idea of enduring what everybody knows is actual normal childhood adversity forges character like very few other things can. Here's an example from school. Let them take the F rather than make an excuse for them. My wife's a teacher, so I've got stories. I talk to teachers all the time. We have an excellent Christian school on this same campus. I hear stories all the time. Here's one. Early in the pandemic, when everybody had to be online for at least a few weeks, my wife provided an online test to her students, her junior high school students, and she received an email back. I can't remember if this guy was a pastor or not, but he might have been from a parent. And here's the thing with pastors. We're the best or the worst people you'll ever meet in your entire life, okay? <laughs> it goes really hard in one of two directions, okay? This guy, probably not the best, if in fact he was a pastor. I don't actually remember. But here is the gist of his heated email to my wife. I've taken the test three times, and it keeps failing me. I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> well, sir, I got a couple ideas of what's wrong. First of all, you just said you took the test. You're not enrolled in the class. You're not a junior high Spanish student. You shouldn't be taking the test, and here's something else. I speak Spanish, my wife speaks Spanish. She can teach it. I can't. I can speak it, but I can't teach it. Here's what we found out. The kajillion dollar software that was used to apply the test, it did not conspire against this man. It, it was not corrupted. It was not misprogrammed. Here's the problem. You don't know Spanish. That's what's happening. You're providing gringo answers to a legitimate Spanish test and getting back failure in return. And we laughed and laughed about that. I'm telling you the story because it's perhaps the most absurd example I can think of of protecting a child from the consequences of not learning. Not only did he tell her, study harder, let me get you a tutor, let's talk to your teacher after school, as she is always happy to do, he stepped in and took the test for her and then, after repeated failure, took it up with the teacher in the software program that something must clearly be wrong. There is no possibility that I could fail. Of course there is, sir. We're all failures in our own way. This is how we learn and this is how we grow. Here's another one from budgeting. 
Let them save up and help with the purchase rather than buying it for them because they have to have it. And this applies, yes, to even big things like buying cars and paying for college. Now, philosophies and capacities for payment differ. But here's a biblical principle based on these Proverbs. If your children have no idea what things cost and how hard it is to pay for them, you are doing them a terrible disservice. If you bear, if you bear 90% of the cost and they help with 10%, you buy the whole thing and they take care of the maintenance, please apply this wisdom by making sure that they have at least some skin in the game because this is how we learn and grow. This is how we learn to put our trust in God in times of adversity rather than running for the false idols of success or popularity or safety where all adversity and all pressure is removed. Let me be more specific. This is based on my research. Teach them the difference, please, between pressure and stress. Pressure is a normal part of life. Stress is what you foolishly do in response to pressure. Let me explain. Pressure is a demand for performance. Pressure is a demand for work. You have a presentation to make. You have a sales call to make you have a job that is due with a deadline and your boss is going to de demand that that deadline be met, he's going to expect the quality of your work. It is time for the midterm, the final project is due in three weeks. That's pressure. To make it very personal, a pastor preaching feels pressure. Being under these lights, with this microphone, that's pressure. Just to give you an example of the difference between pressure and stress. Stress is what I do with the pressure. To speak of preaching, if I spend all night, Saturday night, worrying and projecting with negativity the worst possible things that could happen to me from preaching, and that sounds like this, they're probably not going to like it. I probably don't understand these Bible verses well enough to explain them. I'm probably going to make a fool of myself tomorrow, and when they all come, they're going to, I'm going to be exposed as a fraud and someone who didn't actually study the Bible and had no business behind the pulpit tomorrow, and they're all going to leave, and probably in two months, the church is going to be a strip mall. We're going to have a target in our, we're going to have a target where our worship center used to be, and it's all my fault because I'm not prepared for the sermon tomorrow. That's stress. Do you do that? I bet in your own world and with your own things, you do that all the time. That's life. Your children have never felt the pressure. Every succeeding season in life, as they move into preschool, that's pressure. Mom and dad are staying home. It's me and my backpack in with all these other little Philistines. How's this going to go? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't get better. Then it's grade school. Then it's everybody's favorite jungle, junior high school students. Then it's high school. Then it's college. Then it's the job market or learning a trade. The pressure never stops. And in present day life, because of cultural trends that I don't have the expertise, that I only somewhat understand myself because it's not my area of research and my area of expertise, we have taught an entire generation when you feel pressure, that's harmful. 
you're not safe. You need to get out of the circumstances that are producing the pressure in your life and run to safety. No, a better parent teaches them that pressure is normal, but God loves them. And their family supports them. So you will stand with them and encourage them and help them as best you can. And when it's all over, we'll have either won and succeeded or we'll have learned valuable lessons or probably somewhere in the middle. We've succeeded in some areas and lost in some others, but we'll do better next time. And day by day, pressure by pressure, not turning it into stress, which is a fearful projection of negativity on the future, but rather turning to God, saying, God, this is my life and these are my responsibilities. Help me now to show up as your child and to do what I should, to be a good student, to be a good worker, to be a good friend. A character is forged that will give you rest and delight in them in the years to come. So what that means is, number three, you set the standard And you let the painful consequences come as necessary. Number three, set the standard and let the consequences, painful as they may be, come as necessary. Let me tell you something about your kids. They will tell you that the pain is harming them, but it is usually only teaching them. Of course you stay engaged. Yes, sometimes coaches and parents are abusive. You shouldn't tolerate that for a moment. If that's the real situation, of course, you need to rescue your child. But that's rare. What modern-day American children have been taught to call abuse often is simple failure. I didn't make the team. I didn't pass the class. Listen, I've got some experience with it. I've been to summer school. I discovered because my high school in Mexico, my private high school in Mexico, required things like physics and organic chemistry and God help me, calculus. I learned at a very early age what I was good and what I was not good at. I learned that God gave me a love for words and a very, very minimal understanding of numbers. I'm as surprised as anyone to have someone in the family studying engineering. I don't actually know where he came from. Not, that's not, my DNA is not helping with that particular Uh, facet in his abilities and I begged my parents to get me out of this school this is unreasonable I'm going to go to seminary what do I need calculus for no stick in there I failed and I failed spectacularly I once handed in an exam blank (laughs) I put my name on it and handed it in that's how bad it was that's how lost I was but my parents faithfully kept me in the fire, telling me that I certainly could do it, that many others had, that they would support me, that they would get me a tutor, and I would get through it. And though I will never do anything like that again, the character lessons developed in that summer are irreplaceable. And I was telling my parents, I'm being harmed. They're killing your one and only child. My self-esteem is being annihilated. Is that what you want? Do you want me destroyed? And as it turns out, it wasn't destroying me. It was forging me. And you prevent all of that. And you step in the way of God's law. That choices have consequences, and a certain kind of planting produces a certain kind of harvest every time you step in and rescue your children.
Support them adversity, in adversity. Walk with them through adversity, but do not rescue them from it. That's where the lessons, the most valuable lessons in life come from. It is only the rod of discipline, the rod of correction, the rod of consequences that teaches people, most of us, what matters most. Let me put it to you in very simple, plain language. For a good number of years now, I've volunteered as a police chaplain, and I've learned something painful. If you don't teach and train your children, somebody else will. I've seen police officers teach lessons on the side of the street that a father should have taught. Of other times, when the, when, the, when the crimes are serious, I've seen the police officer step directly into his role and do no fathering at all but simply apply the law. And off to jail and eventually prison you go. If you don't teach your children through moderate consequences that can be soothed at home, somebody will. It might be another teacher, it might be a coach, it might be a law enforcement officer, but consequences and lessons are inevitably taught. You want to teach them yourself because you actually love them. You can moderate and mediate the pain and the consequences and keep them without losing hope that they might if somebody else is in charge. Finally, and most specifically, and please hear me on this, protect them from the harm of social media. I strongly encourage giving children talk and text-only phones through junior high school. No smartphones, no social media, no internet access. To be more specific, delay the smartphone as long as possible, ideally until high school. If the smartphone is going to be part of their lives, and it is, limit and monitor its use even then. Hear me. Yes, you can do this. The tech mavens of Silicon Valley are doing exactly this. I looked it up and I was astonished at the prices. The hottest schools in Silicon Valley are low-tech schools. People that are paying private college money for junior high, high school students are in Silicon Valley where these technologies are made and refined are enrolling their own students in schools that are much more likely to use notebooks and blackboards. They severely limit the use of technology. They incorporate it, but they control it, and they limit it much more than an average school and an average family does, precisely because the people who built the technologies know the harm that comes with them. Let me re reference now two secular researchers. The name of the book is The Coddling of the American Mind. The authors are Haidt and Lukianoff. All their data is available online. This is a strange thing to do in church. But they wrote the book several years ago describing some of these phenomenons with no reference to God, but perhaps without knowing it, uncovering some of God's wisdom. And in their open website where they continue to receive challenges from other academics and refine their own teaching, they have something very specific to say about social media. It's in the long footnote at the bottom of the page. Lukyanov and Haidt write this. But we believe that the combination of correlational and experimental evidence plus Facebook's own research is now strong enough to justify part of the advice we gave in chapter 7 about, and here they quote themselves, 
limiting or prohibiting the use of platforms that amplify social comparison rather than social connection. Catch the difference? You want connection, not comparison. They go on to say, this does not mean banning all social media accounts until the age of 16. There are many kinds of social media platforms, and each offers benefits as well as costs. The most damaging seem to be those that encourage kids to post photos or videos of themselves to be rated by strangers. Instagram, for example, encourages girls to show off their photo-edited beauty, perfect lives, and fun frolics with friends. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, the American coddling of the American mind. This is from their thinking as well. It's a common cliche that men are violent and women are not. That's not true. Men and women both were affected by sin. We're prone to violence in different ways. You go to prison and you quickly find out that men are much more prone to be physically violent. With women, the violence is not physical usually. It's relational. Here's what that looks like for young girls. Because of, through the use of filters, I mean, I've met people in, re, in the real world that I didn't recognize because our previous interaction had only been on Instagram. And the filters made him or her so unrecognizable that they had to tell me their name so that I made the connection. Because I thought your skin was perfect and your muscles were bulging and your waist was tiny and your, your shoulders were broad, dude. What is going on with you? Very different guy in the real world. What that looks like relationally is this. You're a 13 or 14-year-old person, and particularly a 13 or 14-year-old girl. You're going through stuff regarding your looks, your body, your worth. Everybody on Instagram has the use of filters and angles to make themselves look better on Instagram than they ever could in real life. And then a person shot through with insecurity about themselves who is keenly aware of their own deficiencies looks at that and says, I can't compare. I don't have any hope. That's the damage. The relational damage is this. It gives anybody, but particularly young girls, a chance to photograph themselves and their amazing lives and show all the others what you're not a part of. Look at the party we didn't invite you to. Look at the stuff we have that you don't. Look how we look and you never could. And that drip, drip, drip of 24-7 connectivity that allows mean girls to be mean girls to someone 24 hours a day simply by posting their pictures and that other person foolishly making the comparison ruins people's lives. Everything that can happen to a person Short of death is something I've personally witnessed and tried to be a help to, and it's all driven through social media. So yes, you can use these things, but you have to be extremely cautious, mom and dad, because your goal in life is not to raise someone who is popular, not to raise someone with their own self-definition of safety. It's not even in the truest and most biblical sense to raise someone who is successful according to the world's standards. What you want to raise is a disciple of Jesus. Someone who has the heart and the character and the outlook of God. Who dedicates their lives, sometimes for a little bit of financial compensation, sometimes for a great deal of financial compensation. But in any case...
is a generous person who dedicates their life to earthly good that will make an eternal difference. Everything in this culture practically is arrayed against the family and against your child. You need to be an oasis, not to falsely reinforce the false narratives, speak more plainly, the lies that the culture is foisting on the lives of your children, but to stand against them. To teach them, as it says in Psalm 78, in difficult times to set their hope in God and not be like their parents who were faithless. In other words, you want to raise better Christians than you have dared to be yourself. And you can if you will teach them to put their hope where it always should be in the God who loved them so much he sent his son for them. You can do it. Take yourself off the hook of outcomes and relish the process. If you failed along the way, maybe that's a conversation. Maybe that's a confession to make to your own children. But say, I'm waking up, and if you'll give me another opportunity, I'd like again to invest in your life because I love you, and I want to put my hope in God, and I want you to do the same. You can do it, Mom and Dad. So let's get after it. Would you pray with me, please? Can you?